Welcome to the Everyone's a Critic Movie Review Podcast. I'm your co-host, Bob Zerl. With me, as always, is professional film critic, Sean Patrick and Jeff Lasseter. Visit us at IHateCritics.net, Everyone'sACriticPodcast.com. We're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Our handle is CriticsPod. Uh, listen to us at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Alexa, all your podcatchers. Subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, though, and give us a five-star review, and we'll read it on the air patreon.com slash critics pod is the best way to support the podcast we have several bonus episodes there some totally exclusive to patreon others that you get long before they come out including a friday the 13th commentary track that uh, sean and jeff did and then t public head over to ihatecritics.net click on the t public link in the upper right hand corner or go to t public and search for critics pod sean where can people check out your reviews uh, you can find me at uh, vocal.media, which is home to geeks.media and horror.media, which are my primary outlets for new stuff. And then, of course, the uh, archive blog, if you want to fact check me on, on stuff I talk about when we're talking, when we're doing flick chart, uh, the best place to do it is there. You can find everything I've written for the past uh, 23 years. And Jeff, where can people get your art? Uh, jefflasser.com has all my links. Uh, do not leave me a message on my, uh, website. If you're looking for a gift for your fiance or your wife for their anniversary, because that I've gotten that scam four times this week. <laughs> nice. It's really fucking annoying. Any events coming up? I know you just had one last weekend. Uh, no, I went, I was at the Davis theater in Chicago last weekend. Um, for the uh, House of Monsters Euro Horrorathon, uh, which was great. Um, I don't have anything coming up for a while, though, so just buy my stuff for me <laughs> so I can afford to do it when I do it. <laughs> I did just pay for my uh, my table at Days of the Dead in Chicago this fall, so I got to make that money back. Come on, guys. All right. Let's jump into the meat of the show. It's going to largely be about Bo's Afraid, R.E.S. or A24. But before we get there, uh, Sean did see a couple movies. So, and I don't know what Jeff saw, but I'm assuming he saw some as well. We'll start with, is it Chevalier? Chevalier? Chevalier. Chevalier, yes. Uh, is a, uh, um, it's a movie. Uh, it's a, no, it's actually based on a true story. And, and and the true story is pretty cool. Uh, you know, the the idea of uh, the legacy of one, of a man by the name of Joseph Bologna, who was uh, born into uh, born to a slave mother and a white, uh, rich, landowning slave owning man. Uh, that man used his money and influence to buy his way his son's way into French society. But it was the kid's talent that uh, took him you know as far as he got to the point where he became close friends with Marie Antoinette. Uh, that's where, of course, he finds trouble. He falls in love with a married woman played by Samara Weaving, who happens to be married to France's top general, uh, who works for Marie Antoinette. And, of course, when Bologna finds himself at odds with Marie Antoinette, uh, everybody's life is at, at risk at that point, as we're bordering on the French Revolution. There's a lot of really good things here. I think Kelvin Harrison Jr. is a good actor in terms of being a lead and uh, i think the idea of bringing forward the uh legend and reputation of uh, joseph bologna is certainly something that is uh, a worthy effort because uh, it it really happened that uh napoleon 
was the one who took Bologna's legacy and trashed it, made sure that nobody knew who he was or that he ever existed. And uh, to bring that back to, to for historians to kind of find that story and bring it back forward is pretty great. And then the only issue I have here is the style of this movie. The style of this movie is so strange. And I got to talk about the ending. And I don't consider this a spoiler because it was based on a true story. The ending of this movie is dumb as hell. Because <laughs> it really is. It, it, it ruins the movie for me. Uh, the, the, he started a concert. He's been told by Marie Antoinette not to do this concert. He and Marie Antoinette are no longer friends. They're complete rivals. He's joining the French Revolution. Uh, she tells him if he goes on stage, she'll ruin him. She may have him killed. He goes on stage anyway and begins to perform. The general comes in and puts a gun to him and is going to shoot him. He stands, uh, he stands the general down. Everybody yells the general down, and he doesn't shoot him. And then, having just started his concert, Chevalier walks out on the concert and does a slow-motion walk where he side-eyes Marie Antoinette as he's leaving. And I'm like, where the fuck are you going? Your concert just started. <laughs> it's, gonna die. Um, it's so dumb. It's so dumb. Slow motion walk at this point is just like so. It's such a dumb ending. I hate it so much. It's uh, really not necessary. I know that they want to make this modern and make him into a modern rock star, essentially. And that's kind of the what the whole performance that Calvin Harrison Jr. is giving here is about making you know, sort of rock star legend out of this you know, guy who was in France in the you know French Revolution. Uh, but really, it, it's just, it's so unnecessary. And considering that this was not the end of his life, he, he fought in the French Revolution. He led the only black battalion in the French Revolution. He lived for a number of years after this. Uh, really, really a dumb way to end a movie. Just burnishing his, le- his uh, legend a little bit. Yeah. Well, it's it's gilding the lily, if you will. It's it's just it's just overdoing it. There's so many good things that they're they're doing here, but uh, especially love Samara Weaving. She's such a wonderful actor. She's ever since Ready or Not, I've been on the Samara Weaving train. But I can't uh, wait to see her and Barbie. I <laughs> is that her? <laughs> wait a minute. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think she's terrific, and uh, yeah. It's unfortunate that they decided to make all these various different style choices in this movie that, again, are intended to modernize it and make it more commercial. And I understand that that's kind of necessary. And it's also, you know, just unsatisfying from, for, for me as somebody who's wanting to invest in this character. Yeah. Fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh,. Let's talk about something less fun. How about we talk about Evil Dead Rises, written and directed by Lee Cronin, and uh, basically not an Evil Dead movie, but we'll get to that. Uh, (laughs) The film stars uh, uh, several different people. Uh, It stars Lily Sullivan, Alyssa Sutherland, and Morgan Davies. Uh, Family is menaced by the dead after an earthquake reveals the Book of the Dead or the place where the Book of the Dead was hiding. The young boy in the family, uh, Morgan Davies, Danny, decides to go into this tomb and find the Book of the Dead and a bunch of records. He brings it upstairs to their apartment. He plays the records with the enchantment. He has the Book of the Dead there. It raises the deadites. They take over his mom, 
uh, and she becomes you know the evil dead of the movie. I think some of this is actually pretty good. I think in terms of like the the gory stuff, in terms of the monster stuff, especially the monster at the end, I thought was really creative and and weird and creepy. But this isn't an Evil Dead movie. Why did you call this the <laughs> Evil Dead? There is zero sense of humor to this movie. Nobody seems to be having any fun. And I, I watched Evil Dead 1 and 2 this week. Those are fun movies. <laughs> like the, I had a great time watching those movies. They're hilarious and gruesome and gross and vomit-inducing. Like it, that you can thread that needle, and there's no attempt to thread that needle here whatsoever. Yeah, I I liked it, but I I guess I'm not much of a fan of the Evil Dead franchise. Mm-hmm. Um, the well, remake, I could. This is an Evil Dead. The one thing I did have in common with an evil dead movie is everybody ends up drenched in blood, mm-hmm. like literally just swimming in blood. Um, you know, and I think that the last one, which I could, I honestly just, I could not get into it. I tried three times and I just never finished it or I like started in the middle or something. I just don't, I don't remember much of it. Um, Something about addiction, or I don't, I don't know. Um, I just couldn't get into it. I, but this one, I got there a couple minutes late, and I, but I was kind of held by it. You know, kind of wondering what was going to happen, and um, my big problem with Evil Dead movies is you never defeat the evil. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like there's. There, you know, oh, I kept thinking, how are they going to get out of this? How are they going to defeat the evil and get it back in the book or whatever? And and then I remembered the original. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, you can do it, but you're never going to do it. Um, that was the only real problem I had with it was thinking the whole time is like, okay, they're going to literally, <clears throat> you know, none of the, there's no reuniting mother and daughter at the end or anything like that. Uh, mm-hmm. Although I did, I love the wood chipper scene. Um, <laughs> I mean, just, the, it was actually really just well done with the effects and everything and how you see the kids faces, you know, kind of morphing back and forth between their deadite faces and their real faces as they're being sucked into a wood chipper. Uh, oh, spoiler alert. Um, <laughs> I, 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 okay, so this was another one of those trailers that I just saw every single movie. It was like Renfield. Every single movie I went to see, this trailer was ahead of it. And mm-hmm. I, it took me forever to realize, probably about um, five or six times watching the movie, realizing that the mom was not being played by Christina Hendricks from Mad Men. And <laughs> Cause she's just when she's dead, she looks so much like her. I couldn't get over it. I was like, "Oh wait, no, that's that's not her. That's somebody else." <laughs> um, you know, I thought the effects were really well done. I thought that the the story was pretty good. Um, I didn't, 
you know, I like Alyssa Sutherland really just freaked me out when she's mm-hmm. looking in the peephole and, you know, she's like talking to the little girl and telling her that, you know, she's, you're, he's going to be fine. You know, Cassie, come on, daddy's here. And, and she just talks her into it. And just the way she did it, it kind of got me to, you know, to go along with it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Lily Sullivan was really good. She, she kind of reminded me of, um, uh, her name is escaping me from the blacklist and Thor. Um, yeah, she I played Lady. I, I can't. Yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> um, I just I thought she was really good. She, you know, she just kind of led. She led a realness to it. Mm-hmm. You know, kind of like the whole, like almost to the end, she was kind of in disbelief that was happening, mm-hmm. that everything was happening, and then at the end, you know, she kind of just. Well, it's happening. I guess I'm going to have to fucking handle it. And then mm-hmm. she did. Yeah. Uh, I really was hoping that some of the neighbors would have had a little bigger part to play in it, I guess. Right. You know, they that were just pointless. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it's I didn't realize over. that Gabriel had kids or brothers or whatever, because they were literally, they ran out of the apartment and then they were dead. Mm hmm. Yeah, so. and it is evil dead. They don't even come back, or they barely come back. I guess. Yeah, uh, yeah. Just a lame way to do it, but like, there's a chainsaw in the movie, but it feels entirely like, hey, it's out Evil Dead. We need a chainsaw. Somebody get a chainsaw. Like, it's just we're playing the greatest hits, which is fine. But it at that point we've had zero fun in this movie, and and yeah. even as much as I admire the monster, and like I said, I think if they call this something other than Evil Dead. I think this is a pretty good horror. I think the creepy elements do work here. I think the I think the gore stuff does work here. I think the performances work. But I'm watching an Evil Dead movie and I'm wanting to have fun and just not having any fun. It's just it is grim. Like Yeah, that was the word I was about, thinking. We're talking about multiple children either dying or near death multiple times. Like it's grim. And that, to me, Evil Dead isn't grim. It's gory, it's gruesome, it's disgusting, but it's also hilarious. <laughs> and I, I get trying to add like a, an element of, of meaning. Like the last movie, I didn't mind Evil Dead 2010. I thought that was not terrible. Uh, and the idea of making it about sort of a addiction and crossing that with Evil Dead, like... It, it made sense. That movie also did have some fun, especially at the end with the blood rain, which I thought was, and yeah. the chainsaw scene I thought was fantastic. That really was a lot of fun for me. Uh, this chainsaw scene was just less fun. Uh, I felt like they were almost ashamed to be an Evil Dead movie. Like, well, I guess we're doing Evil Dead. We need a cabin, so I'll just, I don't know, throw a cabin at the beginning and throw a cabin at the end. And then, you know, the way that they did, like, Again, one of my favorite, one of the great things about the original Evil Dead and Evil Dead 2 is that camera work, that amazing camera work that Sam Raimi does to to hide the low-budget effects and to try and hide the fact that they don't have everything that they, you know, a big-budget movie would have. He just turns the camera into the demon and has that running. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's such a great DIY idea. And here, they have to give it, like, a logical explanation why there's a demon you know, anywhere. Uh, it's not a demon. 
it's it's a fucking drone at the beginning, and it's like that's not a tribute. You don't you don't understand what Evil Dead is. <laughs> that's a drone, not a demon. Like stop screwing around with Evil Dead. Uh, but then again, like I said, though the, the cabin scenes are perfunctory and thrown in there for. I get Evil Dead. We need a cabin. I didn't even get. I didn't even see the that part. I got to the. She had just gotten to the apartment. So. Yeah. Yeah, there's a I don't know what happened. Getting in a, in a drone shot that mimics uh, the you know Raimi's moving camera that turns out to be a an actual drone. Oh, boring. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> but, otherwise, but like I said, though, I I would I'll watch another uh I'll, I'll watch another horror movie by Lee Lee Cronin. I think he's incredibly talented. He's just not directing an Evil Dead movie. Yeah, I think that. Uh, I don't know that it would have, you know, done as much business if it hadn't been called an e- Evil Dead. True. Um, I thought it was <sighs> okay. This is going to sound dumb, but I thought it would have been a really good, like, original horror movie. You know, a possession movie, or you know, just just something where, you know, she gets bitten by something and turns into this. I think that for me, it would have been a little better. I wouldn't have been expecting the humor That's and the I'm slapstick. So. I didn't, there is no humor and there is really no slapstick in this movie. I mean, I enjoyed the Pope's exorcist more than I enjoyed this as far oh, as, I mean, like, like, you know, <laughs> tonally, tonally, I enjoyed that as an evil dead movie. You know what I mean? It was I, just, yeah. Absolutely. Totally, this was really grim and dark. And, you know, I was thinking about something before because I had seen the trailer so many times. I thought, you know what? Why why does it always have to be this dark, depressing, trashy place that they're stuck in? Why couldn't it? Wouldn't it be almost as scary or if not scarier if it was like, they lived in this pristine LA apartment and all this stuff started to go wrong. I don't know. Just a thought that I, I had when I was thinking about the trailer and then rewatching the movie. Mm-hmm. I think largely it has to do with budget. <laughs> yeah. Cheaper to get a rundown place <laughs> yeah. in the middle of nowhere, or you can just show up and not even get a permit. <laughs> like they and probably did. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's easier to explain why everything has to be so dark, which is, this yep. is another one of those, modern horror movies where everything is so dark that, uh, you know, it's, we know it's there to hide the budget guys. We're not stupid. <laughs> you're, not crea- you're not just creating atmosphere here. And meanwhile, yeah. well, Sam Raimi is shooting in fucking daylight. <laughs> for fuck's sake. Right. Like, the evil dead movies are the brightest thing in the world. And they're still incredible DIY horror movies. Like, come on, it can be done. You can make horror in light. It can be done. Midsummer, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and I mean, I know we're going to talk about talk about it as the classic, but it surprised me how much of that movie actually is, you know, in broad daylight. <laughs> is our Evil Dead fans do they like like the 2010 version and this one? The ones I know don't, but I don't. I mean, you guys probably know more than I do. I don't. I don't know how anybody really feels about 2010. I thought it was good. I think. Uh, I think it works, uh, and I think it's more true. It's far more true 
than this film is to the Evil Dead. Uh, I don't know if anybody. I, I think this one got good reviews. I, I didn't really check out many reviews. I have not spoken to any uh, Evil Dead fans about this new one because a lot of them I don't think even bothered to see it. <laughs> well, it was funny. We all uh, when we all were at the movie theater the other night. I saw so many people I knew who were going to see Evil Dead. And I was just like, I saw them and I'm like, oh, they're going to Bo is Afraid. No, okay, they're going to Evil Dead. Uh, <laughs> Bo, did any of them come out of it like uh, I got to message my friends and tell them about Evil Dead? Um, no, but I went I went to see Evil Dead last night and coming out of it, there were a bunch of like late teens, early 20s talking about how they would not recommend it. it they didn't like it. It was dumb. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't scary. That kind of stuff. So, do we want to oh. do the right, classic now, and then save the rest oh, of the show for Bo is Afraid? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we probably should. All right, let's do it. The topic. And make uh, it quick. Evil Dead, uh, nineteen eighty-two, uh, directed uh, by Sam Raimi and. Uh, yeah, just everything by Sam Raimi, Bruce Campbell, and Rob Tappert. Uh, the you know, cabin in the woods, a uh, group of friends, and uh, a demon let loose by the uh, finding of the uh, Book of the Dead. Uh, the, uh, <laughs> the again, the what's so great about this is just just the inventiveness you know, of of having so little money to make a movie and still making a movie like this is just it's so impressive to me and it just endears me. Uh, to this movie so much that they came up with and executed so well so many amazing scenes of incredible uh, disgusting gore like especially the deaths at the end you've got you know these dead bodies that are rotting away on the floor uh, it just it does it may not you know it it doesn't look great today obviously but I think even still to me I find it kind of gross and disgusting and uh <laughs> And I appreciate that they're able to do that on such an incredibly low budget. But I also you know, get the talking about Sam Raimi's camera work. The the camera, uh, the moving camera as the demon, you know, making the camera part of the uh, you know, part of the story like that is just such a it's a clever way to do it. Uh, and and it just is so inspired of the do it yourself nature of this and the low budget. I, it just it. And they're just having so much fun. Everybody on screen is having a great time making this movie. And that just comes through, like, especially with Bruce Campbell's just so charming. Uh, But everybody seems to be just really in the spirit of doing this and creating this and being as as big and loud and gross as possible. And it it just, again, it makes it so much fun. Go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, I... I rewatching this. I'm like every time I see, every time I watch this, I think, why wasn't Bruce Campbell a bigger mainstream star? Absolutely, he's funny. He's incredibly good looking. You know, he looks like a matinee idol. You know, he's very like old Hollywood looks, um, and he's got so much charisma. Mm-hmm. Even as he's like, you know, when he's chopping demons and <laughs> killing people, it's like. He's just has so much natural charisma that I can't believe he's not a bigger mainstream star. I mean, every horror fan loves him. You know, he's in Chicago, mm-hmm. I think, tonight, actually. Um, but 
you know, the fact that he's he's only like really cameoed in big movies like Spider Man and other Sam Raimi movies, it, it I don't know, it's kind of a travesty to me because he's just so charismatic. I almost wonder if it's because he's almost a one note joke. You know, his delivery, which and maybe it's because he got pigeonholed into this Ash delivery. Then he goes into this Briscoe County Junior, whatever the hell that was, and with the same kind of delivery. And just every time he talks, is the same kind of cadence. Uh, and I don't know if that's just because that's pe- who people want him to be or if he's capable of acting beyond that. Uh, but that would be the only thing I could think of is that he just kind of has a cadence he's known for and no one takes him yeah. seriously. I think there's also an element as well of, of he, he really wants to work with his friends. And so he worked with Raimi and yeah, the, like they did, they did a movie with the Coen brothers called Crime Wave that failed pretty spectacularly and kind of soured people on them as a team. Uh, and you know, he, he wanted to keep working with Rob Tappert, so that kind of led him down the TV routes with uh, going into, like, coming out of Army of Darkness. Of course, Ar- Army of Darkness didn't do as well as they'd hoped uh, in terms of the box office, so that was kind of a big gamble to make them all big stars, and it didn't quite go as well as they wanted it to. He became a cult hitch, for sure. It is certainly beloved and remembered today by many, but uh, it wasn't the kind of hit that a movie studio wants to see, and so I don't think he gets the big offers that he's that we certainly all agree he deserved. And I think the desire to work with his friends, Rob Tappert and Sam Raimi leads him to TV, uh, to Hercules, Gabriel, uh, Zeta and Gabriel and, uh, uh, Briscoe County. County. And just a couple of dozen, a couple of other straight to, uh, <laughs> straight to cable shows. Well, uh, He's always great, though. He's always great in them. Like, Bird Notice is a just a, an incredibly fun show, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that he's just on it. <laughs> he was on Impractical Jokers last week and was amazing. Uh, yeah. So, oh, yeah. Uh, and I think Sam Raimi's desire to go solo <laughs> didn't help either because now he's working with bigger stars and different, and he's bringing Bruce in for a cameo, but he's not fighting to obviously you can't make Bruce Campbell be Spider-Man. He's too old at that point. But, uh, I think that does, but I also think kind of back to our, you know, we talk about classic movies from like the thirties and whatnot and kind of the less is more approach. Sam Raimi's best movies are when he has no money, you know, it's, yeah. I mean, Absolutely. He, he does great with Spider-Man. Don't get me wrong, but some yeah. of it is just, it's so, it's just he clearly had too much money with the Return of Oz movie he did or whatever it was called. Yeah, uh, I like that movie. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it, but it's not remember memorable. You know, Peter Jackson, same kind of thing. Granted, the Lord of the Rings were super successful, but you know his early horror movies with no money was a lot more impressive to me than everything else he's done. Uh, not everything, but a lot of it. Uh, but Sam Raimi more than anybody else, you can just really tell the mainstream versus his indie stuff is the indie stuff so much better. Of course, uh, Evil Dead led to uh, them doing it again with Evil Dead Two uh, in uh, 1988. Uh, not a complete remake of the first, but like a sort of a reimagining of the whole Evil Dead idea. Uh, with Ash once again and his girlfriend and they go to the cabin and they're going to the cabin alone this time and other people will be arriving later 
and it's that time where it's just where it's just Ash and his girlfriend, and he has to to kill her and chop her head off and cut her to pieces, and uh, it, it's so dark and so gross and so grim. But but again, it's, it comes down to tone. It comes down to establishing how bizarre this situation is, and a lot of that comes down to Bruce Campbell. Bruce Campbell. Be just putting himself in these absurd positions where he's essentially all three of the three Stooges at once. <laughs> he's also Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin. Like he's doing it all in, in all of this one performance. Uh, he establishes sort of the comic tone while everything around him is just just com- a complete horror show that he's also like just appalled by. <laughs> everything just keeps happening to him. That scene of him fighting his hand, though is one of the great pieces of physical comedy in any movie ever. The man is fighting his own hand, and it's fucking genius. And it just keeps getting more and more absurd and spinning out in even more amazing chaos as he's, you know, the hand is reaching towards a cleaver, and he comes up with the chainsaw. It's like, yes, it's so good. And then the, just the, the hand just flipping him the bird when it's been after it's been cut <laughs> off. One of the biggest laughs I've ever had watching a movie. Uh, that alone would be enough. But then there's just so many more great, great scenes in this movie. Well, and I just I love how it, you know, the first one is almost a straight ahead horror movie. And the second one, they introduce a lot more elements of comedy. I mean, it's just definitely comedy in the first, but there's a lot more in the second. And then the third, just a full-blown comedy. <laughs> True. And I just think that's cool the way they did And the way they got the rights back or, you know, they couldn't get the rights back because so they just made another movie, kind of the same movie <laughs> over again. Everything about it right. just has this punk rock vibe to it. Uh, and uh, it's just... And I kind of resented it when I was younger because my brother was such a big fan, uh, and it was his thing. Uh, but as I get older, it's just like it's such a watchable movie. Everything Bruce does is really watchable. Uh, even in the bad horror movies he's in, when he's in it, it's just fun. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I Evil Dead Two is probably my favorite. I would assume yeah. that's kind of the yeah. general consensus. Yeah, it's just it's it's you know a little bit bigger budget and a little more fun, right? You know, funny fun, mm-hmm. um, and it's got Cassie DePaiva in it. So, so what next? Uh, yeah. It's just it, it's a great time. Uh, you you have to see it. I think everybody needs to see uh, Evil Dead Two if you haven't seen it because it is just such a brilliant time. Until he takes. Yeah, he takes that uh, demon camera combination to the next level with even even more insanity. Uh, the, <laughs> I mean, again, they didn't; they still didn't have as much budget as they would have liked, you know. And they still managed to pull off what they pull off here. I love I love Ted Raimi as the uh, demon possessed granny in the basement. Like that's such a fun. <laughs> she's such a funny visual. And he's such a, it's a funny visual, but it's also fucking terrifying, too. Like, that's the kind of character that can haunt your nightmares, which is fucking great. Uh, and I'm going to, go ahead. I'm going to be the one to talk about how every single Evil Dead of the original trilogy has got an amazing poster. <laughs> 
I just and, you know the the first one where the hand is reaching out and the second one with the skull with the eyeballs and army of darkness with the romantic romance novel cover <laughs> yeah they really that really they set, completely set the tone for the movies you're going to watch truly no question I mean, I love Evil Dead as much as the next guy, but I'm ready to <laughs> move on. <laughs> ready to talk about an even more insane movie. <laughs> yeah, and I don't know how you do it spoiler-free. Do we even try? I, oh, I God. I don't think we can. I don't All think right. There's no way. So from here on out, maybe we'll talk who's the man later, but probably not. Uh, we're going to talk Bo is Afraid, and it's going to be full of spoilers so if you haven't seen it uh turn it off now and come back later uh and go see bo's afraid because you must see this movie it's incredible it's my favorite movie of this year it's my favorite movie last year maybe no not last year last year is my all-time favorite movie but it's one of the great movies of all time for sure it's right up there midsummer in this or like neck and neck for me in terms of just absolute genius uh bo's afraid stars joaquin phoenix's bow and what this story is about really is just it's up to you to define yourself psychologically how you view the world is how you view Bo is I guess um, I, I've i thought about it many different ways as to what uh, the character of Bo could be or what his actual thing is and honestly like I feel like it's anxiety externalized like if you're somebody who suffers from severe anxiety this is like kind of the external nature of that where the world around you is just this constant place of fear and terror and everything's out to kill you and you know, just get me back to, to my apartment where I can be alone and even there it's not safe because you're still having panic attacks and it really this movie like from the, in the opening scenes is just this seemingly unending panic attack until he escapes and then makes it to uh, he's rescued rescued question <laughs> By a by a couple who takes him to their home and uh, nurses him back to health. But by that time, though, you've already been through so much and you have no idea where this is going next. Uh, the that whole opening of him, you know, the, they establish this world where he's living uh, as this just this insane criminal enterprise where there's just corpses in the street, naked stab man is running around stabbing people and nobody's stopping him. He's like just building up this massive body count. Uh, even his therapist is not helpful. Like, uh, here's this pill that you take, but if you take it without water, you might die. Uh, <laughs> which is, again, a strong reflection of like uh, anybody who thinks about uh, taking pills that are you know of any kind. You're like, am I going to die if I take this? I guess I'll take it. I kind of need it. <laughs> You know, that's a wonderful just examination of that kind of anxiety. But this movie examines seemingly every type of anxiety there is uh, and takes it to the nth degree. And oddly empathetically, you know, like it really is kind of fair to people who've, who've been through panic attacks and anxiety. Uh, but again, maybe not. Maybe this, maybe this is just my perception of the movie because it is so avant-garde and so out there that you can see this movie... And come away with incredibly different interpretations, like, and really come away from three different movies. Like that opening part, you know, it's all about just 
anxiety, panic, and terror. And the second part is this uh, is a journey, you know, through a different life entirely almost for Bo. And then the final journey of the movie is him coming to terms and dealing with sort of kind of his mother uh, and the, the various traumas visited upon him in that relationship. Uh, everything about this movie worked for me. Yeah. I um, mean, I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, you know, it's not, an unreliable narrator. It's just you're. It, I'm gonna compare it to a weird movie that is a. It shouldn't even be compared to, but like, you know how what Rocket Man is to biopics. It's just its own little world that doesn't really follow a, a true narrative. It's not like Ray or anything. Or any other biopic or just the one pop in my head, but it's. It, it, it tells a story through the songs. This tells a story through the anxiety. It doesn't matter what's real and what's not. It's it's the way he see, sees things. You know, when you're when you have anxiety that bad and you worry all the time. I mean, you think of you dumb things down to as stupid as naked stab man. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that people are legit worried about. You know, it, it, and it's. I think he did a great job of, I mean, literally think about like transphobia. That's how, not that that's what this is about, but people, that's a genuine fear they have. And it's unrealistic. It's stupid. It makes no sense. And he captures all of that in this, with the silliness of that crime, you know, neighborhood he lives in, you know, and it's, and he's weaving guilt and anxiety in and out of the whole thing. And it, it is stressful. It just beats the shit out of you to the point to almost a submission and then maybe even keeps going, you know, and it's just so neat. Uh, I mean, I could go on this so many. I mean, we could talk about this for seven or eight hours, maybe even longer than do it again <laughs> next week. So I don't know where to stop or where to keep going, but it, it's, you know, the one part that I felt was the most real was when he was a kid that, you know, the the imagery was more, you know, fake, but like what was happening seemed more like more authentic and more genuine. All of it was genuine, mm -hmm. but, you know, you could definitely tell what was, was in his head versus. What, point. Right. You make such a great point there about the about the childhood because it is it, it's dreamlike and. And the thing about Bo is that everything that he remembers about his childhood is is basically he has no foundation. And and so when you see like the memories he's having of this woman and the idea that maybe this woman has been in his life this entire time because he thought it was because he was appealing and that this girl liked him. And it may have just been that his mom paid some girl on the cruise to, to, to spend time with her son. Like it, that just may be what happened. And. For him to have like no foundation of what's true and what's not true, which goes back also to his relationship to whomever his father was, we'll get to that, uh, and, uh, and you know having maybe perhaps had a brother that he's completely uh, repressed. Like he has zero foundation, and for I'm I always talk about this when it comes down to like the fundamental things that are true about your life. And it's part of the reason why I have so much empathy for, for trans people, because there are people like 
like myself, I've always known who I am. I've never had to worry about myself and who I am. I'm a white male heterosexual. That Those are concrete aspects of my life. You know, the heterosexual thing, I think that's just on a spectrum. Everybody has a spectrum of what they're attracted to and not attracted to. I think, I think we're kind of evolving away from that idea. But overall, in terms of foundational elements of way people identify themselves in their lives, I've always had that strong foundation. And the idea that you get to a point in your life where you realize that you don't have that particular foundation and you have to figure out what your foundation really is, that to me, I feel so much for you and I want to help. I want to be there for you. And and Bo has that. Bo has that thing where like nothing that he remembers from his childhood is real. Like his mom may have stage managed everything in his life. And he's realizing that and he's slowly realizing that that's probably the root of his, of his entire life. Every anxiety, every fear that he has probably stems from the fact that he can't trust anything that he remembers. He can't trust anyone around him. And he has zero, you know, zero foundation. And that is just nonstop anxiety, fear, and terror. And, and it's a horrific way to lead a life. And Bo is a perfect example of that. Well, he won't trust anybody. Not the, I mean, we need to get it to Jeff here in a second, but all the people in the, the movie that help him out in his mind are not helping him out. You know, the therapist ends up turning his back on him. Probably didn't really happen that way. The people that, you know, nurse him back to, to health, they probably really were nursing him back to health, but he, he is so anxious and so fearful that he can't accept that. And, you know, all, all he sees is them with a, a different motivation and uh, it's just so fascinating and genius how Astra catches all that but, but anyway Jeff you need to start talking so I'm sorry <laughs> I mean if you want to let me I, you know I mean. <laughs> um, so my review of the movie is if Terry Gilliam made uh, uh, shit <laughs> he does I had it I had it well, sometimes. I mean, he did make. Never mind. Uh, no. <laughs> if uh, um, if Terry Gilliam made Torch Song trilogy while going through a severe psychotic break, that's Bo is afraid. <laughs> uh, Jewish mm-hmm. guilt. Um, I mean, we we had this conversation in a chat I was in. You know, where my friend Justin, who is Jewish, said this is like a horror movie for Jewish sons. Because, you know, and I'm like, well, just so you know, I was Catholic and there was a lot of Catholic guilt, too, that I can uh, I can really identify with. Um, Mm -hmm. I just wonder. And the more I think about it, the more I even the more I wonder if all of this entire thing was going on inside his head. Mm hmm. It could, uh, an argument could be made for the fact that this whole thing is just part of his anxious mind and how, you know, I, I can't, I've seen it where, you know, you go out on the street and everything is loud and obnoxious and in your face and everybody's depraved and, you know, wanting to kill you and there's danger around every corner, but that's just how you see the world. And, you know, if, yeah. If another character took the focus for a minute, it might all just be, you know, okay, there's a guy singing on the corner and there's a weird guy and, you know, but everybody's pretty normal. But I think that 
Bo, th- there was that break in his childhood where all of the sudden he, you know, he had a moment of independence from his mom and she decided to take his independence away and gaslit him throughout the rest of his life about how, you know, oh, everything is so terrible and I'm the only thing you can count on. And you see that in that phone call when he, you know, he loses his. Now, and this is what got me, and this is what made me kind of start thinking, and maybe it was all in his head, because he comes back out, and I, I swore he walked right by his keys in the door, but his bag was gone, and I just think that he decided that his keys weren't there because he couldn't stand to face his mother, and then in his in his head, because he didn't, you know, because he missed his chance to go home, his mother died, in his head and didn't, you know, not actual, not, you know, didn't actually die, but in his head she did because of the fact that he missed his chance and, you know, he catastrophized every little thing. If this doesn't happen, then this is going to happen. And if I don't get enough sleep, then I'm going to miss my flight. And I'm, it just, I think it, I really do believe that it was all in his head. Well, I think it's definitely his perspective the whole time. I mean, I think he's going through things, but it's through. I mean, I agree. I I don't think it was like he was sleeping and dreaming at all. But no, I, no, I, no. I think it was, you know, the way it was through his eyes. You know, he, he was legit. That's how he feel, sees the world. And because when people see the world like that, they're not there's no logic behind it. So that's why there's logic holes throughout, you know, and when he misses the keys, that's almost a relief because now he doesn't have to go face his mom. He's got an excuse, but then the guilt sets in and it's just, yeah, I, I, and and then, you know, it shifts, you know, it's still through his eyes, but there's different, like he goes to the whole dream sequence while he's watching the play and, you know, it's where he has to deal with regret or, you know, what could have been and, you know, why he couldn't do why, you know, the generational trauma that he wants to avoid, but at the same time he wants to have a family and he wants to know his dad. It's just the way he weaves all that together is so just so smart. And it really isn't like these rabbit holes aren't that important. You don't need to go down to figure it out, but it's fun to go down and just because of the artistic way he put it together and the all way the performances were, uh, you know, you mentioned the Terry Gilliam kind of idea, but you said it better than I'll ever repeat it. So I can't even try, but I, I kind of think of it like a tool record. <laughs> it's sounds like a really dark metal kind of sound, but a lot of what they're doing is actually very funny. It sounds like they're being evil or whatever, very dark, but it's very comical to say a very dark comedy but it's and then you get the fans that think it's so genius and smart and really it's a simple it's simplicity mixed with complexity at the same time and i just i both love and hate them at the same time because of it so i if somebody tells me they hate this movie i'm okay with that i think that's a good thing (laughs) i think that i think that's probably a a a very rational reaction yes yeah like to me, this makes me hate Magnolia more because (laughs) 
this Ari Aster has control of everything he's doing here, and it all makes sense. I, I feel like PTA kind of is just like throwing things at the wall and seeing if it'll stick, and doesn't really know what he's doing. But this is cool, and it, and then people are like, "This is weird. I love it." And here you'll get that, but you're also going to get more people hating it. And I think it's a, a genuine hate that's earned. And he was trying to get that as much as he's trying to get the love. He's not trying to be called a genius, and that's what makes him a genius. <laughs> I don't know. I I think uh, I think you you hit on another thing there, which I I agree with you about. I was trying to think of tool. I was trying to think of like an art metal kind of thing here because that in terms of the story structure, I think there is that aspect of of music to this. I think there there I think this is in many ways has a mirror of a concept record, uh, one that you can like envision in your mind while you're listening to it with headphones on, and you can kind of imagine a story of a of a concept album, heavy metal concept album happening as this movie and the, the these visuals would be perfect for that in many ways. Um, but you, you touched on something else there too, is that this is a very funny movie. There are <laughs> moments that are very funny. Naked Stab Man is a very funny thing. Like that is very funny. Uh, yeah. You know who he reminded me of? Hmm. Do you guys remember Adventures in Babysitting? Yes. When Brenda is at the bus station in downtown Chicago and the guy keeps pulling yep. his coat on and showing yep. the knife and he's <laughs> doing that weird giggle. Whenever yep. Naked Stab Man was on, that's what it reminded me of because he's like <laughs> showing his knife. You know, it was like, oh my yeah. God. So, that's yeah. Awesome. I, this movie, like I said, is very funny. There, there are a number of moments that are like, it's not. <laughs> it's just inherently funny, but uh, there's another aspect of this that I want to touch on, and that is sex. Uh, set the way that sex is uh, comes up in this movie is very interesting, uh, because you can sense that this is a man who maybe maybe he hasn't had sex. He's definitely oh, like, oh he hasn't he has not tell. had sex He's, because he, it, remember his mom told him the story of how his dad and his grandfather and his great grandfather yes. all died having sex. Well, yeah. he was too afraid, and that's why his balls were so huge. Right, so all the repressed. Yeah, so I agree. He definitely hasn't had sex. Go ahead, Sean. Sorry, I didn't mean to like cut <laughs> you off, but I just. Uh, uh, but the the fear of sex, but uh, even even that permeating like his dream of of uh, you know a family in the future, where he, you know the the angel has to tell him essentially you, you will have sex with her, and it's again that character who's narrating his you know fantasy that he goes on. He goes on this fantasy trip where he finds a village and he makes a life for himself and he builds a family, he meets a woman who, fall, who he falls in love with and they have a family together. Uh, then a flood comes and separates them and he has to spend the rest of his life walking to get back to her, to his family. And even though, like I said, like the, the very funny narrator, this angel narrator, has to tell him that he has sex with her and they have three kids. But then, even then, He's so fearful and so like put off by the idea of sex that he tells his sons that he's never had sex, and he's talking to his own. He's talking to his sons or who he thinks are his sons, uh, which I thought was a very nice touch and just kind of underlining that point throughout his fear of sex, which of course is building to an actual sex scene later uh, between him and Parker Posey that is one of the most insane, brilliant, hilarious moments in any movie ever because he's laid in that idea about Bo being afraid of sex and what might happen to him if he ever had sex, that if he comes, he's, his heart's going to stop and he's going to die. And so you've got that going on, but also he has this deep-seated desire to be with this woman who he knew as a child and who he 
he said he would wait for her, and he did, and here she is now, and she's throwing herself at him, and they start having sex to Mariah Carey. <laughs> I when that song started, I burst out laughing because it's such a great choice. Like it's such an odd. It does not like Mariah Carey is the last thing you would think you would hear in in this setting in an Ari Aster movie alone, but just in this setting at this point, hearing that song was just like. I just couldn't believe it. But then they're having sex and he comes and he lives and he's excited. And then, okay, she wants to come now. And then she does. And then she fucking <laughs> dies on top of him and fucking immediate rigor mortis. Just this frozen in terror as she dies on top of him. Fucking brilliant. <laughs> I mean, I thought right there, this movie has this is the ending somehow, and I don't know how it's going to end, but this is the end, and it's not over yet. <laughs> well, then you throw you know, that. Go ahead, Jeff. Oh, I was just going to say, you really... My one complaint about the movie is that Parker Posey was kind of wasted. I This could have been anybody. I think she's, you know, she's kind of too savvy an actress, but I, I know she wanted to work with Ari Aster and I wish there had been just a little more of her before she froze to death on top of him. But that's one, you know, he, he likes to subvert expectations. You know, he's like much like Ryan Johnson in that effect that you're expecting something. You're expecting Bo to die. I mean, re- I really, for I was like, Oh, he really is going to die. And then his mom will have been right. And, you know, but no, he, he kills her with his very powerful penis and his giant, saggy balls well and i think more than anything he's just jerking off you know or fucking a pillow or something like that and his mom catches him uh because he's so afraid of sex and you know in his mind that he can't even do that because something bad always happens with sex and i guess it doesn't really matter whether it was real or not but uh that whole scene if i could pick any (laughs) sexy not to watch with my kids or parents for that matter <laughs> it would be that one and not that i want to watch any of them but josh was there with his 15 year old son like four seats down and yeah. all i'm thinking is i do not i can't how what is going on over there <laughs> what what is going on in josh he said what is going on with the son's head uh this has got to be awkward but i definitely couldn't I can't imagine watching that with him. And I show my kids messed up shit. That was too much for me. Uh, <laughs> that was something else. I mean, it was so hilarious. So, and then his mom walks in and it's just. Yeah. His mom was supposed to be dead at this point. She's supposed to have died having had a chandelier dropped in her head. And we've seen what we, what, uh, what we're told is her corpse, headless corpse uh, lying in a, uh, in a coffin, uh, <laughs> so great. Uh, but the very subtle visual tells us that it's not her, or tells Bo that it's not her, and that adds a little something to you know that that sex scene where he take where he goes to have sex with Parker Posey in his mom's bed. But in his mind, he already knows his mom's not dead. So this is this is definitely like a a moment for him in more ways than one because like yeah, he's going to. Either he's going to die or he's going to you know, show his dead mom a little something, <laughs> which is, again, just the, there are so many layers. I mean, and then Mariah Carey. 
like just layer after layer after layer of brilliance in that. Uh, but then, I mean, when when mom walks in and just starts in on that monologue about uh, just going off on him, it's so good. She's incredible. I know that's very own supremacy, uh, but like just incredible. It is. She destroys him again. <laughs> You kind of get the impression that she has been doing exactly that to him his entire life. Since the time that he, you know, when she realized that he had just made that switch and said he would wait for Elaine. When she saw him make that switch in his head from, you know, the Oedipus, I want my mom to, oh, there's other women in the world besides my mom. That's when I think she kind of she started this whole guilt trip and, you know, you'll never leave me and I'll never leave you. And, you know, you see that in the the not sexually intimate, but the intimate scenes that they that mother and younger Bo have throughout, you know, throughout flashbacks and stuff throughout the movie. You yeah. see that it's 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 not a, a weird sexual in, intimacy, but there is almost a tinge of that in their scenes from then on. Is it, there's a particular sort of demand on their relationship that she's making that he is, uh, unlike her, you know, whoever was that knocked her up. We'll get to that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> unlike whoever it was that knocked her up, uh, she's going to demand that Bo is loyal to her, that he is, uh, worshipful of her. And, uh, that she is going to, you know, stage manage his entire life in any way she possibly can to make sure and manipulate and control everything that he does. And indeed, she seems to outside of the uh, outside of the dream sequence, she seems to uh, take over and dominate every aspect of his life, even the ones he doesn't think she's controlling, like the apartment that he lives in. She owns that building, <laughs> like you know, uh, she owns the building that he lives in. Uh, she. In Nathan Lane, who ends up you know, treating him, uh, worked for her. Like you see his picture in 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 her home. Uh, like everything that's happened, basically, she's somehow managed to stage manage. Even making him late for her supposed funeral seems to be something she wants because that's an, that's another way to make him feel bad about himself. You know, like, like she seems to be stage managing every little bit of. of every little aspect of his life. And uh, that is such a great, you know, that is such a great, like running through line, like truly what this movie is about as much as it's about anxiety and as much as it's about fear and, and, you know, Bo's lack of uh, a foundation. It's also about, you know, a man's relationship to his mother, a uh, very controlling, you know, dist almost disturbed mother who is you know, just kind of destroyed this guy's life. Uh, and it it all boils down to kind of like a classic sitcom joke about Jewish mothers <laughs> to the point where I don't know if it's a deadline. I don't know if Deadline planted this story uh, just to kind of sell this narrative or oh, if it's, it's fake. Real. It's fake. It is. Fake. That's it's that's a parody account. Yeah, because <laughs> there's a the joke going around that Ari Aster's mom walked out halfway through Poe's Afraid. <laughs> I get the gist. Yeah, I mean, and there's three things though, that could be going That's on. Funny. One is, you know, the anxiety is that he's putting the therapist there. He's putting Nathan Lane in the picture. Oops, 
uh, he's you know in his anxiety he he doesn't trust anybody so he's seeing them there then you have you know what you just described you know the mom uh setting up staging his life for him and and then uh i don't know where the word i was gonna go with the next part but either way it works you know so it doesn't matter which way you take it it makes sense either way and or the generational trauma i mean she had her own trauma you know that that caused her to the way she handled it was by you know guilting him and staging his life and uh i I just i think every way that you slice it he's found a way to play it where it makes sense where and there's no you know you can't prove one way or the other you know and I, i just think that's i love that i yeah that's what i feel about about all of Ari Aster's movies really is that uh, he he really reveals the audience as much as he reveals his characters and himself. Everybody is left, you know, to to reveal themselves and how they feel about what they've seen and how he's presented what what we're seeing. I uh, like I said, uh, each of us each of us love this movie and each of us probably have a slightly different perspective on what happened and it's more revealing of who we are than anything about the movie, mm-hmm. which is fucking brilliant uh it just makes him you know a lot of times when the director does that where he left a director who might leave something open-ended for the audience to interpret it's usually just cowardice you know what i mean like it's usually a director who doesn't want to take a stand on something here it's just it's he he has a lot of ideas that he's expressing and all make sense in various different ways and it's just so artful in that presentation that you can take away uh, different aspects and different meanings of it. That's fucking brilliant. And the fact that it's so artful makes you feel like he actually has one way. And so, or at least he doesn't, I guess it doesn't make you feel that way, but it, it tricks you into thinking, or well, what was he thinking? Or what could it be? And he could have been thinking both, or maybe he did think, I don't really know. But mm-hmm. the way he did it uh, allowed for both to be true without it, without it being a cop out. Yeah. Well, he has a vision. He's a, he's a visionary. He has a very specific vision uh, of how he's, you know, he laid out this movie in a very specific way in his mind, but at the same time, he's laid it out in a fashion that allows it to be open to interpretation for, for all audiences and really, like I said, revealing of the audience as well as himself. Right. You know, I, I, I think that I was uncomfortable a lot of the for a lot of the movie and kind of, I was anxious for it to kind of hurry up in spots, mm-hmm. you know, and I was mad at him. And I kind of thought I was thinking about it this weekend when I was driving to Chicago and I was like, you know, I think that just stems from my own <laughs> kind of problems with an- anxiety and stuff like that. Like I don't like being in uncomfortable situations and, you know, any more than the next person. But when he's, you know, when all the people are in his apartment and he's sitting there watching them and he's powerless to do anything about it, we've all felt that. We've all been, you know, felt powerless to change something that's going on in our lives. And um, I, I, I was kind of thinking about, I was, you know, telling a few of my friends in Chicago who hadn't seen it yet what my thoughts were and how I think that... This is a this is one of those movies that 
it's an Ari Aster movie. I will absolutely own it, but I do not think I will watch this as much as Hereditary or Midsommar just because of how uncomfortable it made me. Mm-hmm. And I, but that makes me want to watch it more because I'm like, <laughs> well, I got to confront some of this stuff that, you know, maybe Bo is feeling and, you know, I didn't have an Oedipal relationship with my mother or my father, but I, I can, I see the roots of that in the movie and how you wonder why is he like that? And then you see why he's like that <laughs> and you hear it. And I, you know, I've, I've, uh, you know, rest in peace, but I've had that conversation with my mother where on the phone where I'm, you know, I was in Denver and she was in Iowa and I couldn't talk to her for very long. And she's like, well, that's fine. You know, it's fine. Everything. It'll be fine. No, that's okay. And I'm like, Oh, nobody did guilt like my mother. And then I was like, Oh, Patty Lapone did guilt really well too. Um, and I don't, you know, I don't know if, I don't know what, what Ari Aster's relationship was like with his mother, but I kind of feel like she did that to him a lot. <laughs> I mean, other, otherwise he did incredible research, <laughs> right? It's entirely possible. Uh, yeah. you know, with Midsommar, the way it made, it made you feel high or drunk. Like it really kind of put you in a weird spot. Uh, and Hereditary kind of does a similar thing. This one, like, and maybe this is a planet story, but I saw it in multiple news sites where, uh, Joaquin Phoenix actually had to tell college students to not do mushrooms before going to see this movie. Uh, like he came out and made a public <laughs> service announcement because that was like some sort of uh, game kids are playing take mushrooms and then go see Bo is afraid there is no need to do that <laughs> this movie will get you there on its own absolutely and then it, it, some, I felt like I was on them the entire time well, I was just like what right. is happening and so if you're going to take them it's going to really it's not going to be a pleasant experience it's already not pleasant you know in the right ways but I, I thought that story was pretty hilarious uh, are we going to talk about the dick or no? <laughs> you mean the giant penis monster in the room? Yeah. Uh, I mean... <laughs> so throughout the movie, Bo is uh, trying to recall this dream, what he thinks is a dream, uh, that he had as a kid where he is in the bath and his mom has given him a bath and then he sees a little boy who looks exactly like him outside the bathroom. And you know, being very upset and asking for their father. And then mom takes him and takes him upstairs into the into the uh, attic and uh, leaves him there. And then we never hear of the brother again. And, uh, you, of course, Bo doesn't know who his father is. His mom will say who his father is, and he's always wondered about his father. So after he's had sex and Parker Posey has died on top of him, uh, his mom comes back and you know, they have a big confrontation. Finally, she goes, you want to see what's upstairs? Let's go upstairs. All right, let's go. And she forces him upstairs, forces him into the attic. And in the attic, there is his uh, emaciated, uh, dying twin brother. And across the room is a giant penis monster that, that mom has stated that is his father. Uh, it's, it's a giant, giant penis. Uh, and at this point, there's this military guy who's been chasing him ever since he left Nathan Lane. 
uh, at Amy Ryan's house, uh, who's been trying to kill him on their behalf uh, for reasons. And he comes rushing through, comes breaking through her window and ends up confronting the giant penis monster. And the giant penis monster kills him with one of his, uh, with one of its uh, spider talons just right through his skull. And he dies. Uh, and that's the scene in the movie. That happened. That We all saw that. <laughs> <laughs> so what Jeff, is, is it? The giant, is the giant penis monster real? I don't think so. I think my take on it was that, you know, his mom kept saying, your dad was a dick. Your dad was a dick. Right. You know, I could, I, I can imagine her saying your father was a giant cock. I can hear that in Patty Lapone's voice. And he just manifested that because like I said, I think, I think the whole thing was in his head. You know, I think that, he was just the worst things that he could possibly imagine were what we saw. Right. And I think, you know, a giant penis with spider legs that could pierce a man's skull. I, you know, I think that's one of the worst things he could think of. And that happened. So, and, and, and that's seeded into his imagination from the Brown recluse in his apartment earlier in the film. Yeah, I mean, I think at that point he's in such a downward spiral. You know, as a kid, they her his mom freaked him out of that attic so much that you know he has this repressed memory that may or may not be real. Uh, the only every time she mentions the dad, like you said, refers him to the dick. Nothing, no name, no. There's nothing about him. He's just basically the guy who got her pregnant and then disappeared. The only time he comes back is in the little fantasy play is the only time he thinks about his dad. And it's more of a fantasy version of what his dad, what he'd want his dad to be. Maybe that is, uh, but in the real version <laughs> where he's, his anxieties and guilt are just, take him to a nervous breakdown. I mean, all he knows him as is a penis. He's just the guy that got his mom pregnant. And, yeah. And so that, to me, it's just that. And, you know, the army guy that's attacking him, I don't think it's real. I don't think Nathan Lane and Amy Ryan's characters, I think all they were trying to do was help him, but he's so anxious that he can't trust them. And, you know, it's, He's constantly running for something. He's, you know, his world is imploding on it and on itself. And, and that's just where he's at mentally at that point. That's what, you know, he, he's not seeing straight. It's, I don't know. What are your thoughts, Sean? Yeah, it's definitely at this point we're building towards uh, his, his suicide, which I think is also, I think he's killing himself at the end. I think that's him. He's just drowning, basically. He just he goes out into the sea and he drowns himself. But we what we end up seeing is his sort of last vision of of the world, but also kind of Ari Aster's commentary on on you know cinema audiences watching this happen. Uh, you're watching somebody uh, go through the last moments of their lives. That's where we're the crowd that are surrounding him. You've got Richard Kind there, who's laying out the case for why he should kill himself. Essentially, uh, the the one person, that one little tiny voice in his head that tries to stand up for him, 
is just brutally murdered. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, his mom is there, obviously, just looking down on him imperiously, and then you, the boat turns over and he's dead. And I, I think that is uh, highly, it's just it's wonderfully, brilliantly symbolic. And you just what we've talked about throughout here, as abstract as so many of these images are, all of it makes sense when you really lay it out. Every little bit of it is perfectly logical and kind of ra- you can rational rationalize just how it all fits together as a giant puzzle uh and just it makes me love it there's just that much more when people didn't like hereditary it really bothered me uh as you can listen to those episodes where josh was just like yeah it fell apart at the end uh and after seeing this, it was like, okay, I get it now. Even going back at that, you know, you watch that scene where the kid gets his head cut off, or yeah, his sister gets her head cut off. That's probably hilarious now, having seen Midsummer in this now. That probably was, he probably wrote that to be funny. <laughs> but <laughs> at the time when we watched it, it was pretty like, holy shit. Yeah. Uh, I haven't gone back and watched that in a long time. I really need to. Uh, but I That's just, a Mother's Day movie. <laughs> coming up. Uh, yeah, I just, I am your mother. <laughs> I don't even know I was going with it. Um, but just, no, I, I guess it's the, you know, back to, it's not a complicated movie. The themes are very simple. Uh, and that's just what's so neat about it. And, but I, I am, and I said it earlier on, I like that people hate it. It makes sense to me that, you, that people hate it. I don't want someone going, that was awesome and have no idea what they're talking about. And I don't think you can do that. I mean, I think people will try maybe a little bit, but it really isn't that complicated. And then it's fun to go down these rabbit holes and talk about the dick or the sex scene or the Mariah Carey or whatever else. All of it is fun to, you know, dissect and go over but in the end we're not that far away from each other the theme doesn't really change it's just the way we think it kind of came apart is Mm -hmm. different and that's what i just i love about it and the fact that nobody left the theater until the credits were over yeah that was great not just us nobody (laughs) uh yeah because the credits you you kind of think that maybe something else is going to happen, even as the credits are rolling, because he just holds on the final scene, and it's so wonderfully symbolic. You know, you've got the crowd walking out of the of of the auditorium where he's just died, and meanwhile we're all just kind of left there, going, "Is is is it really over?" Well, really over? that <laughs> and I like I don't know if I can stand right now. <laughs> you need a minute. <laughs> <laughs> just Do it I. Nobody wants it? to be the first one to move. Yeah. Well. <laughs> what else I want to say, though, about this movie is that I do think you can watch this and not even try reading it. You can actually enjoy this movie as like a funhouse ride of just complete insanity. I think if you obviously we were always going to kind of dissect it and look at it closer and 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 look for the symbolism and whatnot. I think you could watch this movie all three hours of it as a thrill ride. And come away almost as excited as we are, because I think that's just the 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 way he structured this and the way he's played this out is so insane at times that it just it that in of itself the the absurdity the the uh 
is just as almost just as entertaining as as tearing it apart and looking at the pieces. And I, I don't even know if I would use the word entertaining or thrilled or whatever, but definitely affected. You're going to feel something. You're experiencing something. Uh, and I think we're all going to experience it a little bit different, but I think you're 100% right. You don't need to get what's going on to feel affected by it because I made it definitely wore me down. And I'll be honest, I haven't really dissected it. I haven't really thought about it again until now. On, well, on the way home, I'm like, at first I was like Pink Floyd trying to, maybe it was, and I was just like, no, it doesn't fit. And then I put tool on and I was like, okay, this makes sense to me now. And, but then since then I've just been so like, I had to go chaperone prom. I had to go just do shit that had, that did not allow me to think about it. So I'm just kind of now dissecting it with you guys for the first time outside of the, when we hung out for half an hour or 15 minutes, whatever it was. Uh, and I, I know I agree completely. It is, it is just such a, an experience. And I don't think, I think Ari Aster's kind of gotten to that level of already after only three movies of like a Tarantino or a Scorsese where, or other directors where it's not, you're not really making movies anymore. You're like making an experience or, you know, something beyond a movie. It's kind of, let's put this over here. This is special what you're doing. It's not, you don't even put it up against, you know, anything else really. And I don't know. It's he's my favorite director working right now. He hasn't messed up yet, and I can't wait to. I want him to start working on the next one already. <laughs> well, Bo is unafraid is coming out in two years. God damn it! I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Only Ty West can do that. <laughs> Not Bo is unafraid, but make movies out of his movies. <laughs> Uh, I mean, I know we could start over and have a totally different conversation about it. Uh, anything else on Bo is afraid? <laughs> you know, I didn't. I, I, I didn't know if I liked it until I started to really think about it on my drive, and pick out the themes of it and how they, how how I could relate to that, and that made me actually really come solidly down on I liked it. Um I know I know one person that I met this weekend saw it and hated it, but always hates Ari Aster movies before they go and see him again. So I'm pretty sure Josh hated it. Yeah. He was <laughs> afraid uh for more reasons than just having his son there. Well but for the right reasons. You know, I, I this is a movie I'm okay with you hating. It makes sense to hate this movie. And I think, like I said earlier, I think Ari Aster went out of his way to make people hate it. I think he's done that in all his movies, but he really went for it here. And the thing is, he, he doesn't care if you like it or not. And that's such a great way to approach making a movie is that you truly don't care if people are, are impressed or not. He's not. He couldn't care less if you're impressed with this. He made the movie that he wanted to make. I mean, I would even go a step further and say he went out of his way to try to make you not like it. I think <laughs> I think there was an element of him saying "fuck you" to people, and I think he did it. He's done it with *Hereditary* in *Midsummer* too. You don't put a guy inside of a bear suit and light a barn on fire unless you're trying to be like trying to lose them. Like, it's, 
or, you know, enjoying losing the part of the audience you don't like, you know, there you go. (laughs) I love that. Well, you don't, you also don't cut off Tony Collette's head with a piano wire. (laughs) If you're afraid of what people are going to really think. Right. Uh, Well, the whole hereditary ending, you don't go there without. (laughs) Yeah. A hundred percent. You know, Tony Collette is a goddamn movie star and you're cutting her head off. She's cutting her own head off with a piano wire. And you're expecting the whole movie. You're expecting her to be the heroine and she's supposed to come out of it and solve this and like, you know, save her son. And well, sorry, we've subverted your expectations once again. And she's cutting her head off with a piano wire and her headless corpse is floating into a tree house. You know, it's like, holy fuck. Well, and that the ending was so out there. Mm hmm. It's, you know, I just, now I love, I mean, and that's back to where I have the tool comparison. I mean, they have a song called Hooker with a Penis, which is essentially them just shitting on their fans. Uh, (laughs) And their fans don't know it. (laughs) And not even like the real fans, like the kind of the fake ones that they don't want anymore. And it's that kind of a, it's a punk rock attitude with way more talent than anybody with punk, a punk mentality should have, you know? And that's what I just think is so, I just, I will forever be fascinated by what he does, whether I like it or not. Uh, he's always going to fascinate me, I think. And I just can't imagine him doing something like middle of the road or, you know, pedestrian whatever it's going to be is going to be something that challenges me one way or the other and i'm fully expect to hate something at some point and it'll be the right reason Ariaster thor <laughs> he does that then i'm done podcast over you guys can if he does then one of the next three star Wars movies or something like that or if he goes down, I mean, I'm already bummed that Denis Villeneuve is kind of turned into, I, he's great. I love him, but he's, he's the first one that really from this podcast that we discovered is, you know, kind of a new director, but he went down, you know, more of a, like a smart camera. And I don't know. He's a really technical, great, like a Fincher, like a technical filmmaker mm-hmm. who can dabble in art, but Ari Aster just, he controls something like Tarantino does and there's just, everything is perfect in it. You know, he, he knows what it's going to be when he shoots it. He knows if he's got to alter something, he knows how to alter it. He just has total control and there's not a lot of directors that have that. And I just think that's fascinating. Absolutely. And you know, that's the, uh, Enemy is it actually a kind of a good a good movie that kind of rolls along the lines of an Ari Aster film where it's a movie that doesn't care if you can follow me. I don't care if you're understanding what you're seeing. I don't know by by the way, there's a giant spider at the end. I'm like I don't care if you understand what that means because uh, it was about the feel of it. It was about what Villeneuve wanted to you know. It was about manipulate manipulating you to a point where. If, Somehow this makes sense to me, and if you didn't, if it didn't make sense to you, fuck off. <laughs> you know, you don't get, you don't get the movie. We don't want you here. 
But well, but you know, and he's he. Go ahead. No, you can go. I was just gonna say, I I kind of feel like we mastered enemy. We figured it out. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think with Aster, there's no mastering it. I, I don't know if that makes sense. But anyway, Jeff, go ahead. He is one of these directors who I I would just trust to make their own movies without a bunch of studio interference. And he, and I would go with it no matter what it was. If he made a Star Wars movie or a Marvel movie, I would be like, well, I don't want to see it, but. I'm going to trust the process and see what he does with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, like him and Ryan Johnson and a few of these guys that I will just, I, I'm fascinated to see what they, what they do because they're so steeped in this, you know, like kind of old Hollywood knowledge of, you know, storytelling and things like that. And I think that Bo is afraid is just, it's kind of like he had a fever dream of all these different things while he was pissed at his mom <laughs> you know here we are well i have to leave to pick up my daughter in five minutes do you guys want to run Bo is afraid through flick chart sure sure and then you guys can either keep going or we can just call it a show that'll be up to you <laughs> i think we finished this and we can call it that's fine all right Yes, that was the Miz. With we've gone on for quite some time, I believe. Yeah. What is going on here, Bob? What are hot milfs and daddy dilfs doing on your screen? <laughs> oh, you're looking at Ted Cruz's Twitter. Okay. Ah! <laughs> Nightmare fuel. What is going on? You lost. The, you lose the sign in. There we go. Like. <laughs> Everything was freezing on me. All right. Bo is afraid. I'm curious. I mean, I'm not even... We could do this next week, too, and it might change. Maybe we should for, like, the next five weeks. (laughs) Bo is afraid. Be kind. Rewind. Yeah, Bo is afraid. Yeah. Bo is afraid. Robin Hood men in tights. Bo is afraid. Agreed. Bo is afraid, Notting Hill. Bo is afraid. Yeah. Yes. Bo is afraid, Outbreak. Bo is afraid. Agreed. <laughs> Bo is afraid, Reservoir Dogs. Bo is afraid. Yep. I agree. Bo I'm is, go ahead. Reservoir Dogs fan. I like it, but I think it's... Uh, it's his first... Bo's afraid blue velvet. What is blue velvet doing this high? Uh, Bo is afraid. Probably, <laughs> probably what it's up against. And I feel like every time we mention it, uh, we like it or dislike it a little differently every time. <laughs> Bo is afraid any hall. Bo is afraid. Agreed. Yeah. Bo is afraid chasing Amy. Bo is afraid. I'll just I'll say chasing Amy just to stir things up because I know that but I know that you're gonna check. I'm gonna say Bill's afraid today. <laughs> uh, there's definitely a recency bias to it, but uh, Bo was afraid everything everywhere all at once. Everything everywhere all at once. Yeah, I have to agree with that. 
Yeah, because I don't That's see myself. That's absolute mastery. Mm-hmm. Bo's afraid, high fidelity. Bo is afraid. Yeah, Bo is afraid. Agree. Recency bias. <laughs> <laughs> Bo is afraid, hereditary. Hereditary. What did you say, Sean? I said Bo. I love hereditary, of course. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, hereditary is like, it's just, it's, it it, ha- it has a special place for me because it's the first movie that I saw of his that just, I mean, I couldn't wait to see the next movie. So I'm sticking with hereditary. It's more watchable to me, too. It's definitely more watchable. Like I could, I could, I, I will watch hereditary twice as many times as I will watch Poe's Afraid. And that part of that is length. Part of that is the not feeling like I'm going to scream at the screen the whole time. I, this is hard for me. I mean, obviously, but I think I'm going to go bow only because, like I said, when people would shit on hereditary, it like really bothered me and I didn't understand why. And Bo helped me understand why. <laughs> and and recency bias too, uh, which I think puts it at number six overall. So we have three re or yeah three re extra <laughs> movies in the top ten, right where they belong. Honestly, <laughs> um, uh, you know, and I think all time for me they would probably be all three in my top ten. I think if I ha- if I'm forced to put Bo's Afraid up against Midsummer, I think I, I probably it's going to be Midsummer. I think just because. I still feel like when I watch Midsummer, I can still go back to that you know drunken headspace that I was in immediately after it, and I, I'll just I'll never forget that feeling that that transformative sort of excitement. Uh, you know, I, I always tell the story about walking out of it, just muttering to myself, "He sewed him in a bear suit and lit him on fire." I just kept saying it to myself the entire, like I was standing at a gas station afterwards. And I'm just saying to, over in my head, "He sewed him in a bear suit and lit him on fire." <laughs> For me, Midsommar is the fact that it was that first movie as an adult where I went to see it by myself, but. You and I, Sean, were texting and calling each other back and forth just to talk about it within like five minutes of seeing it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same with Bob. So, Bob and I messaged immediately after I saw it. Well, and I saw it the next day, and I kind of knew what Sean like. Sean was like, "I feel like I'm drunk," mm-hmm. and and, right, I, mushrooms. and I don't think I knew Sean went to the gas station, <laughs> but I I just knew he didn't. He just slid out of it. And I, I kind of went through the same exact thing Sean did, and it wasn't on purpose or anything like that. It was just I was out of gas, and it was just kind of felt weird. I, you know, I put on a record when I got home, and I, then I texted Sean, I'm like, put this on and tell me what you think. And then he was like, holy shit, I agree. And it just, everything about it just clicked. And, you know, then throwing you on the show that week, and you're agreeing, and even Josh uh, later on kind of having the same kind of, I don't know. There's just something special about that movie that I would definitely take that over Bo is Afraid without even thinking about it. Uh, but that that has nothing to do <laughs> with uh, Bo is Afraid being lesser than. It's just, it holds a special spot for me, experience-wise. All right, anything else? If, 
if I were ranking his three movies, that his mainstream movies, it would be Midsommar, Hereditary, and Bo is Afraid. Just because of the fact that I'm more of a horror fan, and I don't, I saw this as a kind of a like like a horror movie, but not a horror movie. Whereas the other two, I really think of as horror movies. And I think he thinks of all of them as comedies, only because I've heard him oh, say yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. And that's that just makes me wonder what's going on in his head. <laughs> All right. If you guys want to continue talking, you can, but I got to go. That's <laughs> uh, all right. I think we can call it. I good. think we're good. Yeah. All right. I will Thanks. see you guys next week. See ya. Bye.